Hey, it's Street Fight Radio, the number one anarcho-comedy podcast or radio show, radio show on any station across the nation. As you know, we're on vacation, soaking up the rays. I'm probably on Twitter constantly and still, but not doing podcasts. I'm not doing podcasts for a full three weeks. So uh, I had to get people on here to talk to me so that we could fill that airtime with interesting content that isn't dated because it's recorded obviously right before so uh, i have uh kumar's salahe i get it right kumar's it's salahe ah fucking shit sorry delete your account (laughs) from delete your account you ever got it perfect i would start to wonder if you worked for the cia or something i'm a hillbilly so it shouldn't be surprising that i that i do get it wrong but I got I got you to come on the show with me and and we're going to I mean we're going to talk for an hour and uh this is going to be a replacement for one of the shows that we would have done on uh vaca- on on uh the regular week. I can't believe I'm taking time off. This is incredible. I'm just going to say. No, it's amazing and I'm I'm really glad to be here also on vacation. Uh I'm chilling uh, literally at the Holiday Inn right now. Uh where my, uh, in San Diego, actually, where my girlfriend is attending a work conference, and I, unfortunately, due to a, an administrative error, had my class for the summer under enrolled. I am off, and I got a little bit of a pay cut, but uh, they're paying me just to to write my dissertation and fuck around. So, how how is it like? So you have the whole summer off from uh, teaching, and you just have to do your like. I mean, y- y'all. I mean we can talk about this but but you're you're are you're going for your doctorate right your your yeah. phd you guys you work like 60 hours a week on that shit anyway don't you <laughs> uh, let's go with that yeah no, <laughs> i really don't think so i actually think a lot of the sort of pessimism about phd programs and the amount of work that you have to do is is kind of overblown considering how awesome it is that you just get to be kind of an intellectual worker and and teach and and, and, and study and also get paid for it. It's just that the compensation is shitty and you are exploited as a worker, but I'm happy to put in the work. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I always looked at it like when I was in college, if I was like writing papers or, or, or figuring thing, figuring out how to do a project or, or research or something like that, it didn't even feel like work to me. It was, it was like taking tests. I didn't like to do, but I oh, also, yeah, you didn't like that. I hate. I I would. I mean, that's what really like. I think I wasn't gonna get into grad school because I don't. I test so badly. Like I, I can write and like, you know, I got like some pretty crazy grades on papers I wrote, but I tested so bad. It didn't matter what it was. It didn't matter if it was something that I like. I knew the material. I would just sit down and be like. Uh, I don't remember any of this now. You know? <laughs> yeah, I got way uh, more into school as I got deeper into college. And I used to want to be a filmmaker. I, I thought of myself as an artist and I just, uh, I really treated high school that way. It's just like, oh, I need some experiences so I can, you know, write about interesting stuff and make realistic characters. And at that point, I just kind of wanted to make Wes Anderson knockoff movies. But the end result of it was that uh you know i found i actually liked academia which was supposed to be just a way station on the way to 
to, to getting, um, you know, an, an MFA or making it in the art world. But I, I really just like being a, a, an academic, I guess. And I'm, I'm, I feel pretty lucky that I got to do that. God, the, I mean, the art world, which is I'm tangentially, I, I don't think I am a, I don't like to say I'm an artist because I'm a podcaster. <laughs> you know, it's like such a weird, like, it's a weird thing to think that you're an artist, but, and, and you don't want to be one of those self-serious comedy guys either. So, but like, I mean, wanting to work in show business, all, I, I was a guy that wanted to be in show business my whole life. And then uh, I, I, I'm here somewhat i mean i make my living in in doing shows and uh it's it's far i don't know it's like not as it's weird when you're there i guess is is the thing like you don't feel like you're doing it ever you know if that makes sense like i never feel like i'm like a real show business guy i go on tour all the time i'm never i'm always on the road doing stuff i'm always recording i'm always saying something but like it just feels like this thing that could go away tomorrow all the time like that's the whole career where with academia it feels like and and i i used to think this when i when i was thinking about going to grad school when i was a social sociology student was like my dad would my dads are like real famous for saying, you know, you'll never make any money doing that. And he would, he would say that. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, if you go into it thinking I'm going to be mediocre uh, or average, then you probably aren't going to make any money doing it. But I want to be like good at it where people want to pay me, <laughs> you know, if the, uh, like that was yeah. like the conversation. I, I mean, he pretty much every job, he, he kind of, that was what he told me. He, he was always like trying to downgrade whatever ambition I had. But that's right about academia, that there is always, at least still, room for the best. Uh, and you don't have to be sort of naive about the meritocratic, you know, reality that, that we live in to acknowledge that, that certain people can still make it. And I'm kind of betting that I, I will be, I guess. Well, but I, you have, you have like a real talent. I mean, you, you like, ha I, I think it takes a little bit of somebody who can be engaging and speak and stuff to make it there, you know? Yeah, I think I, I tend to, one thing I like to do is to wing it at like presentations and conference stuff and just kind of, uh, other people just read from their papers. It's not a, a radical difference, but as someone who records a podcast regularly, I'm actively conscious of how I sound to other people. And sitting there sort of droning on, reading word for word the academic prose that I compose, uh, I, I just don't see how that's going to turn anyone on to, to my work or anything else. But, you know, I, it, it's funny, actually, when uh, I was on last month to talk about uh, Fox News just very briefly in the Colin show, uh, I made sort of a reference to, to uh, being a scholar and having to go back to the source material of uh, Fox News after watching The Daily Show and being sort of dissatisfied with the commentary. And that was just sort of a joke, but somebody actually assumed that that's what I do my academic work on and DM me and was like, hey, you know, I'm so glad you're still doing this work. I can't take it anymore, but here's all my amazing research that I did when I was, a, you know, a doctoral <laughs> student on this. And the whole time I'm just like, I, I'm mortified because I'm like, holy shit, I have to explain to this guy that like, I just watch Fox News out of compulsion. Like it's kind <laughs> of fun for me. And I have very rarely addressed Fox News in my work when I did. It was when I was an undergrad and, and, and 
uh, a master's student. I did cinema studies and media studies. But uh, these days, I'm in a German department, actually. And my dissertation is about something totally different. Well, you know, always tangentially related. But I'm writing about the history of dialectics and in, in, in Hegelian uh, Marxism and, uh, you know, also in East Germany and sort of other German socialism. And, you know, I don't really get to talk about that on the show, uh, on, on Delete Your Account either, but it's fun just to, to be able to take a break from the, the week in, week in, out of, uh, of talking to organizers. Right. I, I said I had uh, T on Ricky. He's Ricky Rawls on Twitter from, from mm. Champagne Sharks. So I had him on recently and I talked about how like, well, you know, I got a lot of friends that I really, really respect that do podcasts, you know, and like uh, I want to listen to all of them. And oftentimes I do like I, I listen, but I don't listen to anybody with any regularity because I feel like my head is my job puts my head in that space. It forces my head in that space to go to work. So like when I put on somebody else's podcast and they're kind of talking about some of the same things that I've been thinking about all week, it like feels like I'm talking back to myself, you know? So like, I, I was like, I just listened to like wrestling podcasts. I really only because that's the only place where I get relief from, uh, the, just, I mean, me and Brett talk about such depressing stuff. You know, I, I, you, you guys do that too. How do, does that take like a toll at all on you? Do you ever feel like, God, we are so depressing? You know? you know, we don't feel like that as much because we actively try to provide sort of alternative solutions and basically just at least a, a suggested plan of action when we bring up important seemingly intractable problems. And, you know, when it's, you know, honestly, really just a clusterfuck and, and we don't know what to do, but then we sort of acknowledge that uh, we did a climate change episode where we talked about, you know, the, the psychology of, uh, you know, what, what uh, the overwhelming threat of climate change is versus the, the likelihood that, that we can actually contain it giving exist, given existing structures. And in general, though, problems are more concretely solvable. You can break them down into parts. And a lot of the activists that we talk to are doing local organizing. Um, you know, whether it's labor organizing, we talked to Cooper Carraway, the, uh, uh, now he's actually a, a, in the national uh, AFL-CIO, but he was the head of the Sioux Falls AFL-CIO and really pushed an intersectional uh, and radical labor organizing uh, platform and, 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 and has, is doing really uh, encouraging stuff. Very young guy. Uh, they they, re they retweeted our Means TV video. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> no, they, he's he did great things with that that chapter, and I hope it's going to continue to to do radical things without him. But when we talk about the issues that are, like I said, intractable, we try to figure out ways where we can nonetheless tract them a little bit. That you know, foreign policy is really fucked up. Like we're, you know, trying to figure out how to talk about all of these issues where we can't even really plot a plan of action for the left because anti-war organizing isn't a priority on the left right now. Uh, half, you know, half of the left is, uh, you know, still kind of just fighting over domestic issues and, and everybody uh, who's running in the democratic primary with even a little bit of, of support from people on the radical left has issues with 
foreign policy. And, you know, a lot of times it just comes down to who's doing the action despite the odds, despite how it looks. And what can we learn from that? Because sometimes, you know, and this is, uh, if, if you're interested, one of the sort of lessons of, of the counterintuitive way that dialectical thinking teaches us to uh, see the world is that, you know, a lot of times it's not until you've already accomplished something that it appears possible, especially given the way that uh, the overall view of the system can appear so paralyzing and so overwhelming. Sometimes you have to act as if you can succeed on the local level that you can actually affect and, uh, and see where it sort of butterflies from there. We, uh, I think the reason I get down a lot is because, uh, I, or the, I, I think maybe the reason I might get down is that we're, we're just talking about these, like every, in regards to street fight, we're talking about these like everyday problems that seems to have always existed, like in the workplace, you know, and, or like poverty or whatever you want to call it. Like we're talking about these like really practical things that it does feel like there are solutions for, but the solutions also feel impossible. And I, I, I guess like, I'm not even there. I'm not in, I'm not in a workplace anymore. So yeah. I, you know, there's obviously fear of, of kind of losing touch with, with who, whatever me and Brett were in the early days when we were just talking about our experiences. But now when you talk to more people, it's like, we're all going through the same shit. And, uh, you're it, it, like when, when I think about domestic problems, like I'm, I'm talking the hyper local, we, we look at it sort of on the individual level, what, what it's like to be around in this time in the United States. And it seems like it, it seems that it just keep, it, it feels like after you hear these stories, cause we hear stories on the Colin show. We do three hours of stories. Oh, I, I know. I get DMS of stories from pe people DM me privately about their job and their boss. And you know, what should I do about this? Yeah. And it's just like, uh, like, <laughs> it feels like we're getting to people. It feels like, uh, because I mean, in the wrong way at times, like the people that apologize for their job, like, it feels like we're getting to people, but it also feels like now there's a bunch of people that are going to work that are the only, they feel more isolated from the other people at work. Cause they're the only people that think this way. If, if that makes sense, you know? <laughs> Yeah, but people did feel that way before, don't you think? And just knowing that Street Fight Radio exists makes them feel less alone. That's true. I just felt so alone when I, I mean, that, I wish I would have gone, I, I feel like I could have written so much about that isolation and alienation in college that, that I was feeling when I was working for a living, like a real job. Like I, I really wish I could, that's like what, my dream is to somehow distill all of that down and somehow get into everybody's ears and say, Hey, you're not alone. We all feel this way, <laughs> you know, yeah. which is, I guess what Marx was trying to do too <laughs> when he was around, but it just feels like people don't, uh, it, it feels like if you could, 
it's one of these weird things with me that I always feel like you can rationalize with anybody, but like, that's not true. You know, I, I, I know with my daughter, I, when she would throw a tantrum or something, when she Mm -hmm. was growing up, I, I would just look at my wife and say, you have to like, take care of her until she's old enough that I can reason with her. <laughs> yeah. And like, that's what I think. I feel like I could reason with anybody, but it's, it. you can't, there are a lot of people out there that can't be reasoned with, I guess, but it feels like, like as far as like work worker stuff that everybody should just be on the same side. It's, it's amazing to me that everybody's not on the same side, I guess is what, what I'm getting at. Like everybody that works in the service industry, I feel like they should be on the same side, but they're not. And it's probably because they're scared, you know? Yeah. I think it's, it can be because they're scared. People can genuinely also have fucked up ideas about how the world works. And, you know, we often talk about the different ways that the left and the right and people in the center see just like the realm of what even is political, right? Like the whole point of being on the left is that, we've been trying to find for decades now sort of safe without mentioning Marx often ways of introducing these ideas that, Hey, what if like democracy is something that can be extended to the workplace, right? By now this almost seems like a banal insight because uh, it has said so much, but people weren't even talking about it until like Occupy Wall Street in the United States. And that framework of like, what is political is something that, we keep coming back to, you know, the, the, the very sort of motif of like, what is uh, capable of being politicized is something that's, that's constantly uh, changing. Like people on the news will say who's, you know, uh, you know, the Republicans or the Democrats are politicizing the fucking like Supreme court or the electoral college or something that like even conservatives with their narrow definition of politics is, just elections should be able to think of as politicized, but it's just a negative word for them for some sort of dirty compromise that has to be reached so that everybody else can, can live their own lives and be as evil as they want. And, you know, that's the conservative view and liberals have basically acceded to that by saying, Oh, well, that's just their temperament. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, what I wanted to do, I think I wanted to talk to like, I guess we can just talk about you and me, like which is what we always do. We are whenever I have you on. But uh, what kind? So you said you wanted to do like Wes Anderson type of movies. Like, do you still think about writing or making a movie? No, no, I, no, I don't. And I'll tell you why. Because when I was in college, I was still trying to get into uh, an MFA program. I was trying to do it the right way. I just didn't have the portfolio. I really didn't work to get to where I needed to be to be a filmmaker or a screenwriter. And as I tried every different part of filmmaking, I found that I hated each part. (laughs) And and so at first I was like, oh, I want to be a director. Of course, everyone wants to be a director. And then I was like, I actually went to like a film camp and I was like, oh shit, this fucking sucks. I have to tell people what to do. I have to rely on them. If they fuck up, it's on me. If I fuck up, it's on me. And I was just not having any of that. And, you know, trying to edit my own shit was just so tedious. Uh, I was like, all right, I'll be a screenwriter. And I was lucky enough to get into a, a little summer 
program at USC when I was still at the University of Illinois, where I, I grew up and went to undergrad. I, you know, I, I loved LA. I got my first taste of being in California, but I also figured out that I was at best going to have to get someone coffee for two or three years before I could maybe write some really shitty generic, you know, movie that that would maybe allow me to somewhere along the line by the time I'm 50, 60, maybe makes the sort of movies that I would want to make and maybe end up on, uh, you know, the Oscar stage with those grizzled auteurs. But I kind of found myself more attracted to politics as undergrad went on. And uh, the last movie I made, actually, it, it people liked it, but it was an experimental movie and it was just an essay film of sorts. It was just sort of a, a movie, this is a little embarrassing to say, but it was just sort of a deconstruction of gender roles uh, and with using like different colors. I also happen to just like uh, baby blue and, and hot pink. So I used, <laughs> I used these filters, I'm very sophisticated. I just used kind of filters in iMovie. And uh, I just made what was essentially a, a philosophical essay into a movie, a short six minute, you know, thing on YouTube, you can find it if you look hard enough. But it just convinced me that I would saw the visual medium of film as an impediment and not as sort of like a liberating thing. And I, I was like, I just want to write essays. I want to convince people of things. I want to talk about ideas without having to, you know, <laughs> compose realistic characters for them. Right. It's so weird. Uh, like, I uh I kind of it's it's weird how you end up where you're at like I I think most people kind of go through a phase where they're like this is all I want to do and then they try to do it and they're like I don't want to <laughs> this like fucking sucks because I know that there was that there was a period when I was you know at the end of my high school and the first two years after I graduated where I was just like I just I want to write poetry. <laughs> And music. And it was very weird because of who I was at the time. Like, I know it kind of betrays who I say I was, but I was still like this fucking hillbilly fuck up idiot. But I like thought I had something really deep to say. And I, I have said this before and I, I, I'd like to get your input. Do you feel like you wasted your time when you were trying to figure out how to do film? Because I often feel like, I wasted almost a decade thinking I was going to be like this musician or poet when I don't have, I don't have that skill. I'm not good at it. Yeah. And all I'm good at is being funny. That's like the only thing I have. <laughs> I mean, I think there's some overlap with some of these, these talents. Like I'm sure that you, you could have had quite a spoken word career, but I don't really feel that way about myself. I, I, I think I needed all of that at the time. I mean, nobody's in fucking middle school, high school, trying to find their way in the world. And it's like, oh, I'll be an intellectual. Yeah. You know, like I just wanted to be cool and different and, and, and the sort of person who could make things that I liked. And so I just wanted to be a filmmaker because ultimately I would see movies and think, I wish I had made that. But I never really wanted, looking back, to have really been making that because it's such a pain in the ass and in the end i think that it gave me an appreciation for uh art and for 
you know, culture that is is more nuanced, perhaps, than it would have been if I just approached everything from the perspective that I've uh, I've come to adopt, which is very political, very sort of philosophical. I still fucking love movies and I love TV and I can, I flatter myself that I can sort of separate sometimes the reactionary politics of the entertainment that I enjoy from the, the, you know, the honest to God quality of, of, of what I'm consuming and sort of give an analysis of that, whether it's ever responsible to really view those things in isolation, that's a separate question. But I think that being super into movies before I was into politics actually helped me get some perspective on 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 all of these really important questions about politics in culture that that people are dealing with now. Yeah, I I I I think that's it's possible that because Brett makes fun of me a lot. Uh, people often uh, will will recommend country music to me, and it's always kind of leftist. It's guys that are are like on the left that make country music and and they'll send messages to the Street Fight account and Brett answers it and said Brian only listens to country music by Republicans. <laughs> like <laughs> the, like the, he's because there is this weird thing with me that's like that's the stuff I liked when I was younger. I like like Hank Williams Jr. I know he's horrible. You know, <laughs> and I know like Charlie Daniels is horrible, but but for some reason, I can't separate it in my personal life. Like I can never shut the fuck up when somebody starts saying something that I think is wrong politically. You know, like if, if I'm sitting in a room with even my best friends and my wife, if somebody says something I don't like, I can't not bring it up. Yeah, but, but like we'll trade. Yeah, well, it, it's just a. It, I don't yell at people though, you know. For me, it's this really annoying, eh, you know. <laughs> like I do that if somebody says we can all agree on this. Any point that somebody says that we can all agree on this, I generally would would just be like, no, we can't. Like I can't agree on that. Okay, and then you know you kind of explain why. I've had like these conversations recently with my sister, who who is like she works in a kitchen, and and uh, I told her that I have these weird. I fight myself because I feel like I have like sort of sexist tendencies at times, where like come amongst us. Well, <laughs> it's weird because like I've said I. In the beginning of the show, in the beginning of the bonus shows, not this show on Street Fight, like, but in the beginning of the bonus shows, it was like all dudes and Brett like pointed it out to me. Yeah. And then so I'm like, I need to get women on the show. And I was so and the reason I hadn't been doing it, I think, is because I'm afraid to contact them, which I think is like, but I, I'm sure that's not a bad thing no you know, it's normal, I guess. actually <laughs> i don't think it's bad but it also makes it so people aren't included you know yeah. and, and what i do so it's something that i should work on and then this thing like on facebook i get you know i get a bunch of friend requests every day and i go through and if it's a woman i generally like will spend time researching who it is and with dudes, it's just like, accept, 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 accept. And, wow, and that is sexist, actually. I know. It's fucking weird. And, and like, sometimes it's because I think it might be a cam person. But other times it's just like, 
I don't know why. I don't fucking. I have no idea why I'm I'm like that, and it's something I'm trying to solve. And, and my sister will get very annoyed with me for saying like, "Oh, you're not sexist," she, you know, because she doesn't like to think that somebody in her life would be sexist or racist or something. No, that, like that. Yeah, it's exactly that same kind of what is the realm of politics, and this is the sort of thing that conservatives would not even, you know. Would it, it doesn't sit well with them for you to be making these sorts of inquiries into your own behavior because of course it yeah it jeopardizes everything that they do as well it, it opens that up to the the field of of politics and the potential power relations that you could be reinforcing with your behavior and their whole deal is let's restrict the realm of what we can actually argue about and that's what I think with the PC thing. When when they get mad, we on on at least me, I'll, I'm, I can only speak for me. But the left, my my perception of the left would be that um, my perception of the left is that political correctness, which you know is is such a like weird word anyway, and whatever. But like, is really all it is is acknowledging that there are differences and there's different levels of privilege, you know, and that like, let's address people the way they want to be addressed, whether it's their pronouns or, or, or whatever, let's just have enough respect for a person to address them in the way that they want. But sometimes it feels, I think when conservatives see that or hear that it's very hard for them to understand that they're not being yelled. Like they feel like they're being yelled at, you know, and, and, I don't know why. I don't know why they're so delicate that they, <laughs> if yeah. you correct them on something, then that's getting yelled at to them, you know? I mean, I think there are people on the left who feel this way too. And if I, by political correctness, one means, you know, sort of delineating these norms uh, of egalitarian, empathetic, you know, cultural practices based in the concerns of marginalized people, then yeah, obviously I'm for political correctness, but I also see people who are deeply concerned, it seems, that identity politics and then political correctness alienates, you know, quote unquote, real Americans and, and makes normal people, whatever the, that is, think the left is like weird and uncool. And obviously conservatives do think that, but there's a huge problem with sort of accepting that that framing because the left needs to be defiant in certain ways about those those things that make us different from from what you know conservatives uh, consider to be normal people or or the you know normal prejudices that shouldn't be politicized. Right, and it's something that I look at. I I do like the people that think that identity politics is is a poison to the left and, and makes it so you can't talk to regular people or, or that it turns off whatever these, I don't, these Americans that they have in their head that is like this thing that they made up. Uh, they might like, there's a possibility that as it is stated, like, like there are times where I think it's said in a way that might turn people off, but I have, I rarely, I I rarely run into somebody who I have a conversation with. Like I, I have a father-in-law that is fucking racist, you know, and I can generally get him to agree on eight out of the 10 points when it comes to something about privilege. <laughs> and it's just those last two. I can't fucking figure out, 
You know what I mean? But yeah. like, I don't think he, I, I think that like there are ways they don't, the, the white people that get angry about this stuff, like should be taking it as their responsibility to phrase it in a way that makes sense for them to talk to these people that they've made up in their head. I, I think like I said this, we did an interview with Jacobin and I just said like, I would, I would never say that it's like a person of color or a transgendered person or, or, or anybody. It's not their, they don't, they shouldn't be their responsibility to make this space comfortable for white, straight, cishet guys. You know what I mean? Like it's not there, but that's mine. Yeah. That's no, my exactly. job. I should be articulating that. It's our job to do that, you know? Yeah, that is a lot of the concern, I think, on the sort of anti-PC left. What happens when a real American shows up in a left space and hears that you can't just casually throw out slurs in conversation? I think that's largely an imagined scenario that doesn't really happen because people who are seeking out left spaces, as long as, as you mentioned, people are, you know, a little bit diplomatic about it, people have an understanding that that these spaces are supposed to be more inclusive and that requires some regulation. Like there's no such thing as unregulated social space. It's just that the norms that normally govern social space are, you know, what we would call the hegemonic norms, are are what we would call uh, you know, the 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 mainstream values of 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 Americans that apparently include racism, sexism, etc. I sort of think that when you bring up these issues in isolation to most people, uh, like you mentioned, they're on board with it. And I meet a surprising number of, uh, you know, people that, that are against, you know, saying the R word or the B word or whatever. And uh, the idea of, you know, that sort of being an impediment towards uh, left unity is ridiculous, especially when, you know, when I say this stuff on Twitter, I, all I get is sort of racist jokes and random slurs from, you know, such noted left unity advocates as people with display names like woke Heinrich Himmler. Yeah. So like it, it's, uh, it's, it's just very, it's very discouraging. And I feel like, uh, you know, also some media outlets, I don't think Jacobin is innocent of this sort of encourage this mentality that it's either or, and that anybody who's calling out privilege or even using those terminologies uh, is participating in, in sort of liberal or neoliberal whatever politics when actually that's left-wing cultural politics to insist that we make these spaces safe and inclusive and, uh, you know, not necessarily cater to cultural conservatism. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, again, like if uh, you can do this, I see it as a, a responsibility that, that like somebody like us should take on. I mean, we get a lot of shit from the same people that you're talking about. Uh, you know, there was, there's this fucking weird subreddit now. And, oh, uh, and they love me. They, they got pretty hot. They just, the only time they've ever talked about us, they said we were too nice. And I was, I was like, what do you want me to fucking do? Like, do you want me to like yell it? I don't yell at people. That's not what I do. Like my show isn't a space for that. I just want to have fun and let people on the show. And I think they get annoyed because, you know, we, we respect pronouns and we did, we did do a show where every, the ABCD show is 
ever, anybody but cis dudes are allowed to call in. So like we've done stuff like that, but we want our show to be for everybody. Like you I want well my called sh- it the SJW show. I know. Well, I we just wanted it. We just want the show to be for everybody. You know yeah. that that was it. And and you know what happened with the ABCD show? The phones we'd hang up on people. Because the phones were fucking packed for the entire three hours. We yeah. can keep 10 people on hold at a time. And it was at 10. And then we got to three hours. And I was like, I'm sorry. We can't do anymore. Because <laughs> I didn't think anybody was going to call. I truly didn't believe that we would get any calls. But I, I even, they heard me saying it as it was said. All the people on hold heard me saying it as it was set up and gave me shit. Because, you know, maybe I do believe that all of our listeners are white dudes because that's what people say all the time so (laughs) i just kind of believe what i hear you know well i i think you saw some evidence to the contrary yeah well and and that's i you know what we've heard about our show and like the feedback we've been given is that like yes most people don't want to listen to two white guys talk but there is something about two white guys and one in their one that's 40 and one in their late thirties that have children and are married that have progressive opinions, which is like, we're just supposed to be the kind of people that have gone conservative by now. That's why the argument that identity politics is ruining the left bothers me because identity politics, like this show started as class first sort of politics. And it probably still is because that's who we are and that's what we know, you know, but like identity politics never made me feel like I needed to get out of these spaces. You know, I never felt yelled at. And even when I have been yelled at, like, these are things that don't bother me at all. If I'm going to be corrected, I don't mind being corrected. It doesn't, it doesn't hurt my feelings or anything like that. And uh, the people that have corrected me and the people I've spoken to have been very gracious and kind. And the people that have changed, you know, the way I look at the world have been sweet. And a lot of them are like comedians or people in punk bands and stuff like that. <laughs> so yeah. they just are like, you know, a little more edgy. But like, I just, as soon as I, I just see it as something that I should, I see it as a, as my job. You know, if, if, if we're going to fucking go out there and say, Hey, we want everybody over in this tent, then we need to, you know, show them how to act in at this point party you know what i mean (laughs) no no i totally agree but uh so you said so what kind of movies are you watching lately have you seen anything good that you would tell me to watch oof no honestly oh jeez you don't like infinity war what is wrong (laughs) i just don't i don't like the the superhero movies that much i like i like horror movies i like the movies where where you know people die well, guess what? I now go to horror movies because my daughter is almost 15 and that's what she likes to go see. So I am turning in to a horror movie guy. Uh, is that kind of what you might have wanted to do if you if you had written movies? Was horror or was it? Uh, no, not at all. I actually didn't get into horror until way later. I was always a, a scaredy cat when i was a kid i didn't even go on roller coasters ha, me so, i don't i don't do it yeah. now when i'm 40. <laughs> i still haven't really been on one i've maybe been on like one of the shitty kind of ones that that isn't supposed to you know 
give you heart palpitations. What if, what if, uh, you know, if me and Brett start bringing in that Chapo size money, what if I fly you out here and me and you ride a roller coaster, one of the world's tallest roller coasters together You're on not. film? Because I've never, <laughs> I'm so scared of those fucking things. You're a motherfucker. We'll go on the Superman or whatever it's called. I'm also very fascinated with this, might even be why you like horror movies, but I'm also like fascinated with roller coasters. I watch documentaries about them. I watch ride throughs. Uh, I know what roller coasters are in town. I know the new roller coasters every year in Ohio, which is called America's roller coast. And like, uh, I just, I know a lot about them. I just just, admire them from afar. I'm so scared of them. I am. And and like that might, when you look at horror movies, if you're like freaked out, buy the things in horror movies. I can see where you'd be like, I, I got to see all these things. You know? Yeah. Do you see it as like experimental or do you see it as like testing yourself or is it just something you get joy out of now? I, I think it's just a high. It's just another, I'm a very addictive personality. So I will get hooked on anything and it took almost no time for my horror tolerance to just, shoot up to astronomical levels where the only way I could get off was like found footage. It has to be fucking gory. There has to be ghosts. Like I honestly, I've been on kind of a tea break because there just aren't that many scary horror movies out there. Um, But you know, I'm always on the lookout for a new one. I just started. Right. So like uh, we saw us over the summer, which I thought was pretty good. I don't know if it's, scary i guess it's what what on a scale of one to ten where would you put that in scariness uh maybe a three or a four. Oh, geez i'm such a coward and then we saw ma i don't know if oh, i didn't see that one that one's good but it's not real gruesome early on you gotta like it's like creepy kind it's like a creepy woman you know but but like there was points in that movie i took four so now i'm the dad in the neighborhood that takes my daughter and all of her friends to the rated R horror movies because I'm nice and I'll take them to R rated movies. So like I have, I have a, like a gang of teens with me when I go to see them. So I get to see them squirm. And one of them even screamed fuck during ma like, Oh fuck. <laughs> this is like this, this fucking rocks. I, l- I like being the cool dad, I think, now. I, like, having a teen has proven... I have proven to be better at having a teen than yeah. any other periods of the kid's life. You know, you know? I, I think about you guys sometimes in your parenting, and I, I've always had my own sort of anxieties about having a kid, but now I have one more because I recently learned that you're not supposed to do baby talk with your kids. Like it actually stunts their linguistic development or something. If you don't address them as if they're like fucking, you know, like grown ass people. And that infuriates me to no end. Cause I'm already sick of the people who are like, Oh, it's undignified to your cats to like talk to them like babies. They're fucking, you know, however many years old in cat years. And, you know, I understand the logic of these arguments, but at this point, you know, we have no research that shows it stunts anyone's growth or hurts your relationship with your cat. Now it's serious, though, with these babies. And I just don't know if I can look at a cute baby for however many, God, however many months they're babies 
uh, and not say goo goo gaga. <laughs> I talked to, I, I always, I, cause I think it's a comedian thing and irony thing with me. I always talked to her like she was an adult from like the very beginning. Cause I thought it was funny that I was talking to this little thing. Like it was an adult, but also, you know, I kind of wasn't there for that early part where I was really fucked up on drugs for that early part. So I didn't do a lot of baby talk, but one thing I'll say is like, the thing I've I learned about having a kid was that like they everything the information that you're that you're given at the beginning is like all optional. Everything is so optional and you can just do things the way that you want to do them and then usually I mean I think if you if you're just a person that cares about people then you're going to be okay. You know, the, the kid's going to be okay. Cause like, I didn't follow any of the rules because, you know, I had a really weird relationship with my parents, you know, where I just was like, I'm not, I, I, all I was trying to do was, was make, not do what my parents did. You know, I, I like, I do, do you have any of those? Like you love your parents. I had you on the show and we talked about it. You actually love your parents. So you, you wouldn't have this issue. No, and my parents are both academics. So in a lot of ways, I've entered the family business. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to get Gwen in the family business. I, I do some pop. One of the vacation shows is with her, too. So it's me and Brett talking to her about whatever. I don't know. What are teens into? You know what I mean? Like, hey, that's a hot topic. I know. I know. Well, they're not into anything. What's the 411 on the teens? quick secret about teens they're into everything we liked six months ago they're very uncool <laughs> that's funny so they're like uh they're like uh fucking europe right so like all the stuff that we get into online on twitter the teens catch on to it like probably a month later and they start doing it on tiktok because you know they do tiktok which is a whole separate thing that that people seem to not be able to understand yeah it's the it, tiktok is that what those teens are using uh, uh to with with microvel <laughs> that's another thing that we were into and then the teens got into a little bit later what what is it mike gravel okay. the alaska senator uh, we tried to get him on the show well they asked if he could be on the show and then flaked on us and now i will never have i would fucking rather die than have him on the show now <laughs> <laughs> because they flaked on us they said they were gonna have him on the show and then they never called and i was like i will now everybody that's ever flaked on us uh wayne kramer from the mc5 never he will never speak on this fucking podcast feed ever after he flaked on us i don't even know who that is yeah pat oswald always welcome open door policy to pat oswald on this show <laughs> I'll just say the same. I think Roke is friends with him, so I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and say he's welcome on Delete Your Account. He's sweet. We, we had like a really good conversation about comedy, which is something that's kind of been around in the ether lately. Like it was something that we did like a, a few weeks before. That I, I don't know if you were part of this, but did you see the Nick DiPaolo stuff? The 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 special he did. Oh yeah, I did. Yeah, uh, he came on before that came out, and we kind of talked about 
things like ironic racism and, and well, I don't think what Nick DiPaolo does is ironic racism. There's nothing ironic about it. That's very true. racist. But we he kind of talked about how like a lot he changed his mind uh, about a lot of things in regards to comedy over the past like yeah. two years. And one of the reasons is because he listened to us trash him one time, which is crazy because there was nobody listening to the show when we trashed him. So, <laughs> like he, he was listening to us trash him with like 150 other people. Wow. No, I mean, comedy is, is absolutely the realm of this culture war. Like, I think I, I mean, I'm, I'm invested in comedy. I, I listen to a lot of comedy. I watch comedy and uh, it, seems like it's it's super obviously uh, one of those realms where liberals and people who uh you know might see themselves as more on the left end of the spectrum line up with conservatives in the far right fairly often when it comes to oh defending free speech uh you know i've i've heard anti pc you know leftists spout these same kind of uh lines about what you know social justice warriors are like as as people like nick DiPaolo do you know just just this caricature like you know as if we're all just children that like speak in slogans and slam poetry lines like if words aren't violence why is violence a word or like you know it 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 feels uh like there's this image of an assumed cultural hegemony that liberalism has that just isn't the reality. Like listening to some of these accounts, I'm not going to name names, but like, you know, you would think that in large parts of the country, it's no longer legal to be hot from, uh, from listening to, uh, you know, some of the, 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 the backlash against political correctness and, and sort of people trying to salvage some sense of, oh, here's uh, normal aesthetics. We still like the same things that normal people do. And you're just pretending, you're faking, you're being performative if you pretend like, you know, somebody uh, who, who, who likes a different thing is, is just virtue signaling, as they like to say. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess like I tend to fall on the side of, of I, I, it's not anti-PC, but I do think, I, for me, it's like the thing that a guy like Nick DiPaolo wants or, 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 or what they're asking for to me seems like they're asking for you not to be able to say anything or critique his stuff at all. You know, it, it doesn't sound like, cause nobody is stopping them from doing their shit. Nobody, nobody is going to, uh, nobody's stopping the venues from booking Louis CK. Nobody's stopping the venues from booking Nick DiPaolo. They're booking them. And uh, nobody's protesting outside, but when they do their shit and people are unhappy with it, they tweet about it or they talk about it. And that seems to be what they don't want to happen. And it, right. for me, it's like, I, I, I think that what me and Brett do at times could be considered edgy to like whoever these regular American people are, you know, we, we talk, talk shit about America and and we talk shit about uh I don't know the founding fathers we we talk about burning flags and shit like that like very anti patriot anti cop stuff and like I fully I would be I think it's fair if Fox News puts me on there and takes me out of context and talk shit about me because that's what that's 
part of the game. That's like, that's part of the game. And, and so I think if you're doing something edgy, there should probably be some kind of consequences that could occur if you're doing it. And I think they want none of that. They don't want any of the consequences that comes with being edgy. They just want to be edgy, which I don't even know what that means anymore. Well, I mean, it seems like it means telling it like it is. It's what Trump does. It's this idea of we all have these latent prejudices. We all really think this way. That's sort of the premise. And I think that's a lot of why uh, comedy is an easy thing to defend in this culturally conservative way, because the assumption is that, oh, these jokes are only funny. If you laugh at a racist joke, it's because you really think that. And, you know, I think on some level, what we think is fluid. And sometimes uh, when you realize that you're laughing at something that's really fucked up, you can change your reaction to that because, you know, you can, you're allowed to be ambivalent about something and enjoy uh, you know, the sort of like the moment in your head and then realize, holy fuck, uh, you know, the implication of that is actually something that I'm not comfortable with. Like, and I'm, I, you know, I, I won't pretend like it's, it's a seamless operation. Like I find committing to PC language sensitizes me to it pretty much regardless of context. Like one time I watched RuPaul's Drag Race and I flinched every time they said the B word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I get weirded out because my daughter likes to use my daughter likes to use that and call people hoes. And I'm always like, don't call people hoes. You know what I mean? Until like, she learns that you don't get to tell her what's feminist and what's not. That's why I'm trying. I mean, I, well, she does it. I don't, you know, I don't stop her from anything, you know? I, I mean, I live in a house with two women that use, the B word that say bitch all the time, yeah, yeah. all day and all fucking night. So like it obvious, I like it's weird because I wouldn't call them one or a woman one, but I, I say it about stuff. You know what I yeah, mean? I around- used to say that too. That's uh, and yeah. somebody just once told me, you know, you shouldn't just say that because in this particular context, you happen to not be referring to, you know, a woman. I don't know, but it's these, but it's these little things where it's like I don't necessarily think it all makes sense to me. But yeah. people who have thought about it more and feel it more deeply have told me usually uh, that 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 this is the problem with it, or that uh, I should just stop, even if I fucking don't get it. And realizing the the value of the privilege discourse, I think uh, should should lead you just to this conclusion that you don't always have to get it and you can be a little annoyed sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> like it's okay. And it's, you know, it, it really feels like the people that come across as contrarian, as we like to say, or, you know, personally, I think anti PC is something I'm comfortable using because political correctness. Yeah. People don't identify that way, but it's so obviously everyone kind of knows what it is. And the people that, bash it on the left are manifesting a conservative tendency that you see everywhere because it's it is temperamental as much as ideological there's this resentment towards norms around language is always sort of tied to a contempt for marginalized people when they actually ask you for things instead of being an abstract you know beneficiary of of your organizing yeah and and i did the 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 uh, i made some conscious we me and brett made conscious choices in the early days of the show of of sort of things that we would say and do and and it has 
say on the show. And uh, there's a lot of words that we just don't say on the show because we want it to be a place that everybody sort of feels included and comfortable with the fun. And I'm always willing to, I'm always willing to hear somebody out on yeah, on some of the stuff, obviously I'm 40. So like, I'm going to say shit because I'm just, I try, I try as hard as I can, but there's some things that I'm just like, okay, uh, I'll try not to call things crazy anymore. Yeah, but it's about what your response is. Do you say, oh, you know, I'm 40. Let me yeah, <laughs> see what I can do about this. Or do you say political correctness was run amok. And yeah. I think that second response is becoming more common it's it's fucked up to say but i actually feel that gender norms and just norms around culture and identity have sort of regressed in the trump era and right. there what? needs to be some pushback against that instead of trying to accommodate it and make right. our left-wing politics more compatible with that well it, well, it, it makes it less inclusive it's like let's let's make this thing less inclusive to include the people who hate yeah including everybody and liberals you know? are doing this too i don't want yeah. to make it seem like it's just some sort of like horseshoe theory like liberals the, all the new york times op-ed page and all of that shit uh is about is also centering the white working class whatever the fuck that is and you know that that sense of oh these people are susceptible to racism you know how can joe biden or whatever uh kind of thread the needle with them and that I think that's just seeding more and more ground in, in to to the right. And when left wing people do it, especially after criticizing liberals and, and the Democrats for compromising with the right, I think it 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 really does betray a certain blindness. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, again, it, <laughs> there's room for discussion about stuff that not everybody might like. I'm, I take a lot of the stuff to heart and try my best not to be horrible like that my goal is like not to be a horrible person and to take everybody into account and that's and, very noble of you yeah well no it's not it's not the, the 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 on the continuum there's people who want to be good and there's people who want or who are horrible and i just want to be like one up from horrible like better yeah <laughs> No, I, I, I know what you mean. I mean, obviously I was being facetious, but yeah. I feel the same way that I'm not naturally a super generous person. I think, frankly, I could have turned out more reactionary than I did. And a lot of what got through to me was, you know, moments when I, I had a sort of a different perspective just shoved into my face. Maybe not, I didn't get it the first time, but it wasn't you know, coddling that made me see the harsh realities that, that forced people to, to take, you know, extreme positions on, uh, on, on culture and on language and, and, and those things. And obviously, you know, you, you mentioned you're a class first show. I mean, anybody who's a Marxist acknowledges that, uh, you know, capitalism is, uh, you know, the primary sort of modality. It's the, it's the uh, overall sort of umbrella that structures a lot of the different oppressions that people face and the fact that those you know are are conditioned by capitalism that capitalism affects how they manifest doesn't mean that the other concerns are distractions and yeah uh, 
I think there's a way that people try to have it both ways and say, well, you know, those are important, but uh, we have to realize that we have to uh, appeal to people on the basis of universal interest. Well, that's not going to get everyone on board because you know what else tries to do this lowest common denominator politics? Every other kind of politics. <laughs> like every other kind of politics is also about leaving out the people that are the most marginal. And the left is supposed to be the one place where those people have a home. Right. Yeah. God damn it. You're exactly right. And and with the comedy stuff, like I think it's for me, it's like everybody just do what you're going to do, but expect backlash. If you're going to do something that fucking caught, if you're like these guys, uh, you know, will make something called please like Jim Norton has a comedy special called please be offended. Right. And then he's like, oh, these fucking crybabies oh, are offended. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll tell you about this. Uh, I, I don't know if you know this, but uh, so I'm doing a bonus mini series on the $5 level of the Patreon. Ooh, I got to up my subscription. Coming out in October. It's going to be called Jocktober. And I am uh, an Anthony Cumia homage. Right, yeah. How'd you know? I'm doing... I, my friend, I am also a connoisseur of right-wing media. I am doing... <laughs> uh, I'm doing Jocktober. I'm going to do five different shock jocks and talk about shock jocks for five, six weeks. Six shows, uh, five different shock jocks, and then one show that kind of covers the genre as a whole. I'll be tuning into each one. And I am listening to only that stuff right now. Like, I am only listening to Tom Likas... Man Cow, Bubba the Love Sponge, Howard Stern, and Opie and Anthony. Those are the only, that's what, those are the shows I'm talking about. I think they're the biggest ones. Yeah. Um, probably they were kind of, I think, like, if we looked at ratings, those would be the highest rated well, ones. When the Tucker Carlson business was happening, remember Media Matters had that uh, expose of his old clips from Bubba, Bubba the Love Sponge where he's, you know, basically advocating pedophilia and saying all oh, sorts yeah. of other bigoted shit. And uh, the part of the discourse was like, well, what the fuck is Bubba the Love Sponge? And uh, the way to describe it, I guess, was, yeah, they're sort of sub Howard Stern, sub Opie and Anthony, but you actually rate Opie and Anthony higher than Howard Stern, even though Stern is the more household name. What, what was more interesting to you about uh, well, it's not that. that I I rate them higher. When I talk about influences, uh, it's not always stuff that I'm proud of. And uh, if I had to look at what influenced Street Fight before pre Street Fight, what influenced me, it was Opie and Anthony. Like I was a very big fan of that stuff, and they made me want to do radio. Howard Stern never made me really want to be a radio guy. I would listen to it and be like, oh, this is really cool, you know? I would love mm. to be a guest on the Howard Stern show. <laughs> like, oh, I'd love to be famous one day and be a guest on the Howard Stern show. But Opie and Anthony were the guys that I, I just, like, I want to be Opie and Anthony. Like, I want to be the radio guys. And like, uh, you know, my politics changed between the time that I was able to get a podcast going or, or something semi-popular like my politics changed but i still think their show was pretty important to to what i do because yeah i thought they were i think it sucks to say this uh, brett actually said this in the car 
when we were driving on the last tour and I was making them listen and listen to the shock jocks with me because I'm like pretty much keeping my head in that space. I'm reading all their books. I just finished Anthony Cumia's book a couple weeks ago and now oh, I'm yeah. having a horrible I didn't realize he had one of those. It's not good. It's, <laughs> it's a bad book. Howard Stern's books are good though. And so is, uh, uh, well, no, the worst one's man cow man cow has a bad book. It is just a horrible book that I'm trying to like read, but I had Brett listening and Brett was like, Brett was never into this stuff, you know, yeah. cause he was a lot cooler than me at the time that this stuff was bigger. He was like into punk and like cool things. And uh, he was like, it fucking bums me out that Anthony Cumia is funny. Like, I just wanted to listen yeah. to this and be like, this guy fucking sucks. He's not funny. You know, I don't know why anybody ever liked him. But when you listen to it, you're like, he's like, he's fucking funny and it sucks. You know yeah. what I mean? No, and that's what I meant with the being able to reckon with that dissonance between whether you agree with something and, and whether it's effective as art and like when it makes you feel bad for appreciating it that's a particular kind of power and it, it makes you happy i think it makes a serious person have to look more into the matter and i think it's great that you're doing that yeah i mean do you do, do you ever go back and look at stuff that maybe you were into before you were into politics and start to i mean i try to get myself back in that mindset i was talking to t about you know, a time where I used to do a podcast that was very influenced by Opie and Anthony. And like, I want to get, I, I wish there was some way to get that mind back for a little bit so that I could look at what was going yeah. on with me when I was like kind of doing ironic racism, when I was, you know, using the R word and all Ryan. of that stuff. Well, I mean, I did it. I, <laughs> I like, I always fully admit it, but when I was doing that, I've just stuff, never said that before <laughs> when I was doing that stuff, like, I really wish I could know what my reasons were. And the only thing that I can come up with now yeah. is that I kind of just felt like I was some truth teller. I was realizing something that everybody knows and just saying it out loud. And I think that is something like, I'm not proud of that thought process, but I think that's what a lot of them think, you know, like, oh, sure. I see this whole thing. Uh, you know, we all see these things happen and we're just saying them out loud. Yeah, we're, we don't endorse like them. Yeah. Telling it like it is. That's what <laughs> yeah. they said about Trump. I keep coming back to that, that people were like, oh, he's racist. He's blah, blah, blah. This is during the campaign still. And on Fox, it was, hey, he's telling it like it is. And I was like, wow, it, it is like that, isn't it? For in the minds of so many people and being able to channel that resentment is, is so powerful. No wonder a lot of left-wingers are, are envious of that. Well, he doesn't get it. I, I, I think that that big thing about Trump that gets me is like, he's just, I can see why T actually turned me onto this way of thinking too, was I can see why uh, people look at him and see a guy who says whatever he wants and never gets in trouble, you know, and, and they want like white. Cause, cause T thinks that like, there is all of this anger because white men were promised something 
when they were kids. Like we were promised this thing where we were going to be in charge and we were going to be able to say whatever we want. We were going to be able to do whatever we want. And it's not necessarily like that anymore. You know, you can lose your job for being racist and, and things like that. And and he was like, uh, you can see why there is this backlash and this sort, this kind of comedy showing up because like people just want to, people just want to be, like uh, they want what they feel like they deserve and they feel like they lost it or they feel like they missed out. It's not how I yeah. feel. Yeah. I would say I agree with that on the whole, but also that comedy always, always existed and it just stands out more now, I think, because when you go back and look at older comedy, I, you know, it can be 10 years ago, 15 years ago. It could be the fucking eighties. You listen to the, to the fucking, you know, these, uh, Friars Club roasts with fucking Sinatra yeah. and shit. Uh, it's all edgelord shit. It's just that it wasn't edgy back then because it was just normal to say. Like, there's like one black person at every roast back, you know, Don Rickles and all of these fuckers. Uh, and they're, they're making the same sorts of jokes about that one black person that are now considered sort of edgy to make on podcasts or uh, or, or at a comedy club. And what it seems to me is that, yeah, there is some resentment that people feel like, you know, things are changing. I think part of the function of political polarization is just that, yeah, there's no kind of center that everybody agrees with. There's no three channels that always tell you exactly what you need to hear. There's, you know, going to be people that can't just pass off their comedy as uh as as mainstream anymore i mean i think when you look back at the history of comedy it 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 only hits uh political correctness only really hits towards the end of the 80s with like dice clay and stuff the before that there's just an assumed norm that you can say shit like that it's not like andrew dice clay came around and fundamentally altered something about comedy it was just that he uh was a particularly brightly shining uh, misogynist at a time when people were finally starting to uh, ask questions about what the fuck people were performing and why people were laughing at that at certain jokes. Yeah, yeah, and and I I think I I I don't know. I think mainstream comedy still stinks now, and and like I think one of the reasons I'm able to do what I do and and also willing to talk shit about the shock jocks and stand up is because I don't have reverence for like Don Rickles or any of that. I never liked it. I thought it was all fucking corny. So like, I don't even know if what, I don't know what I'm doing, but uh, I don't feel like a part of the brotherhood of stand up comedians or comedians. So like, I feel like, I don't know. I put rules on myself, I guess. And, and uh, I, I, I don't feel like a part of their brotherhood. And I feel like I can question and criticize them, which was something that just wasn't done. I mean, that was yeah. another thing I liked about Opie and Anthony is that they would have people on and they would fucking tell them if they weren't funny. You know, they have a guy on or a comedian on and they bomb and they're like, you're bombing, you suck. And then turn that into radio. And it was always just like, oh, wow, that's, you know, it's refreshing in a way to hear somebody say, like something bad about another famous person, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it was always, I was always so obsessed with like famous people. Like I still like the tea. Like I still like famous people talking shit about other famous people. I will never not love that. <laughs> 
Yeah, you know, I kind of like it too. I in the in the same vein and actually really tangentially related. There was these were some of the same people. Uh, this came into the news again recently uh, for I don't remember what reason. Might have been in connection with the the Nick DiPaolo thing. But I got reminded of Tough Crowd, that old show on I loved Central it. with Colin Quinn. And uh, that show to me was such an eye opener. And they're all on YouTube, a lot of them, in, in shitty, grainy, and kind of VHS uh, rips, it seems. But you look back, and it's all right wingers, and maybe like Sarah Silverman is like the most liberal person on the show. Sometimes there will be some interesting, uh, you know, perspectives that sneak in. But in general, it seems like the criteria, uh, the criterion, sorry, for who gets on the show is do you know like nothing about politics and you know are you going to have a rapport and like start a fight with patrice o'neill and the overwhelming kind of tenor of a lot of that show which i think started in like what 2002 maybe to, through 2004 was that like colin quinn is just a normal like kind of uh, middle of the road comedian who's for bush and he's for the war in iraq and every comedy segment i think this aired right after the daily show so there was a little bit of kind of like left right tension there too but he was always like hey you know rah rah fuck saddam hussein let's go get him and it's so disturbing to watch them make jokes about this in the run-up to the iraq war and as the war is going on and you know i think I, it got canceled a little after bush's election a re-election rather and when you get to those later episodes you can tell that even colin quinn has kind of had enough and of, of, of Bush, and it's just turning into this uh, culturally reactionary space where they think that they're the only show on television that gets to tell the truth, and that the entire press has been uh, trying to get this show canceled because, you know, here's Nick DiPaolo and Jim Norton and Patrice O'Neill and Colin Quinn and, you know, a couple other maybe people that, that, that agree with them every week, and they're you know, they're, they're saying racist and sexist shit that, uh, that, that the press is finally calling out and they blame the poor, you know, ratings of the show or whatever ended up getting them canceled on, uh, on, on those kind of cultural smears and the changing world of, of comedy and TV, I, everything getting too politically correct in Hollywood. I need an oral history of that show now because I loved it back then. I don't know if I'd like it now. It's all Opie and Anthony comics. It's all people it in their exactly. sphere, you know? That's how I knew who they were. Patrice is another guy that was like, if I had to say like what I wanted to be like on stage, what I want to be like on stage, it's like Patrice or another lesser known guy, Ron Bennington. But like they're these guys that seem so off the cuff and relaxed and that are just saying things that I guess yeah. shock people or make people laugh. But I love that guy. I, I just thought he was a genius. But uh the, I'm going to have to now do a tough crowd watch through after I finish the fucking shock jock show. <laughs> if you do it, invite me on because I, I am, have been watching it for the last few months. It's honestly, it's, it's, it's one of those things where I, I really do have a taste for trash right wing television. Like I even, I was I was never planning on admitting this to anybody, but I actually started watching old episodes of Politically Incorrect, Bill Maher's show, yeah. on uh, on ABC or whatever the fuck it was, uh, and just to see what the fuck the '90s were like. And it's wild. It's absolutely wild. 
but all it is is like you know he's a libertarian at least back then he was you know there here's bob dole here's fucking christine o'donnell the the witch lady but back when she was like a teenage christian activist here's fucking bell hooks on one episode here's a cisco on on right next door and it's wild and you do get to see exactly that sort of like celebrity shit show that that you were talking about on you know i i really do think that uncontrolled environment where a bunch of people are you know try, like basically trying to trying to do well but it's it's also competitive uh it it they crack they're they're insecure people and uh and you see the real drama and the real entertaining moments in those moments of spontaneity yeah but it's funny because we all like miss it's it's weird to hear you because brett has talked to me about watching old clips of old political talk shows where they were kind of sitting there smoking and like gore vidal is talking to like uh, William F. Buckley. William F. Buckley, and they're just like kind of going off. <laughs> oh, on yeah, each other. Like, well, you see, and, the war in Vietnam. Well, they really need colonialism. Or, uh, oh, fuck, the Baldwin. I'm going to mess this up. I need to look it up. But, uh, like, the, just that there were a lot more radical ideas being shown at that time, even if they weren't serious, you know, uh, that, and then, like, you're talking about tough crowd. And, uh, I don't know if you've ever watched. I I don't I used to watch Morton Downey Jr. when I was very young when I was like in my early teens and uh, that's something else you should check out. I've never I, heard of that. You've never heard of it. When we get oh god, I you know what I'm gonna rig up everything and me and you are gonna watch Morton Downey Jr. and do commentary sometime very soon. He smoked and he would have like Ron Paul on and. Whoa. Like uh, he would have all these people on and just fucking they would scream at they were just screaming at each other. It'd be like Ron Paul coming on and be like, I don't want to do heroin, but I think heroin should be illegal. And then he'd be like, you want fucking are you want to have these junkies out on the street? You make me sick. He's like blowing smoke in the guy's <laughs> face. And it was the fucking craziest thing. There's a documentary about him out that I highly recommend to you because you will be blown away by this guy. He was actually a guy who, when his ratings were going down, he went to an airport and he went in the bathroom and he like loosened up his tie and a few other things. And he drew a swastika on his face with like lipstick, I think, and said that he was attacked by Nazis in the bathroom <laughs> to try to get his ratings up. Who hasn't been there? <laughs> so yeah. Or Jesse. Yeah. Oh, God. That's the thing the conservatives love to talk about. Do you hear his name on Fox News every day? Uh, less so now, but yeah, they, that was their pet story for such a long time because, you know, they, they, there was a lot of holding their breath during the, the first weeks of that investigation where they were like, oh, shit, is this going to be us? It looks like it's one of us. And once the the story kind of started to turn around and look at the end of the day i don't fucking know what happened i'm not i'm not saying uh, uh <laughs> i guess i am saying that but uh you know they absolutely loved it when and they couldn't stop talking about it because for them every you know story about nazis or whatever is 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 one too many and the you know the idea i think was very clearly that 
this shows that you know political correctness is 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 gone too far and everybody is now trying to just make it for themselves in this victimization based you know economy that we have and that the only social currency is how marginalized are you and whatever and uh attributing it all to these craven uh you know cynical motives I think that 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 regardless of the the facts of how it happened, the point was that they were willing to see it like that even before the 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 facts came out. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I didn't pay much attention to it, but I have been yelled Jesse Smollett at me by my father-in-law a few times, and I'm like, okay, whatever. I, I don't fucking know. But uh, it's just I'm, like yelling Rachel Dole is all at this. Point. It is. It is. I love I love that, though. Like, I like getting yelled random names that they just know for no reason at all. I mean, I, I'll tell you that, like, the first time I saw my father in law in like six years or like five years, I was at his new house. He just moved back to Ohio. Yeah. And there was three separate times where he was standing up and red and screaming at me while spittle came down his lip because I made him so fucking mad with yeah. just for my politics, just existing. But, uh, sometimes they don't get the names out right today. I was watching Fox and, uh, some dude was like, yeah, I don't agree with Anastasio Ocasio-Cortez. And I'm like, do you even know who that is? <laughs> then she said, yeah, <laughs> people pretend to not be able to say her name. So I know, much. it's really gratuitous, easy one to say. Well, Q Mars, I want to thank you for doing the vacation show with me and covering oh, no, I want to covering you. a shift. And uh, tell them where to find you. You can find me on Twitter at Q Mars Salahi. I'll spell that out for you if you don't know transliterated Persian. Uh, K U M A R S S A L E H I. You should also, as always, look up my podcast, delete your account. I do it with Rokea Shamsuddin, wonderful journalist friend of mine. And, uh, Subscribe to our Patreon. We'll throw that in there. Patreon.com slash delete your account. Yeah. Subscribe. To, they do good stuff. So We do good stuff. And honestly, I will say this one thing. We also tend to have men on the bonus show, but it's for an honorable reason. Because we think women have more important things to say. And so we want those shows to be free so everyone has access to them. Yeah. yeah. It's only That's the men true. who have all this undeserved privilege, maybe – uh you know maybe they have more money whatever that we can we you know they can afford to give us a little free labor and uh we'll make some money off of them well yeah <laughs> well i mean i i if there's i am making a serious effort every time to have women on now but again it's a lot of dudes but uh there will be women in the vacation shows i promise there's already my wife brett's wife my daughter, and I think he's doing some one with a uh, with a a comedian that yeah, is yeah. Try to get one you're not related to. Yeah, well, no, I don't talk to any of those. Um, <laughs> thank you for coming on, Q Mars. I really yeah. appreciate. No, it. No, it's always a pleasure to be here on a Strassenkampf Radio. Hong Kong should mean freedom, liking and accepting anything that you like, playing whatever you want, as sloppy as you want, as long as it's good and it has passion.